0: Well, there's a uh, Peanuts cartoon and it shows Linus watching TV. And as he's sitting there on the beanbag, kind of watching the screen, uh, in walks Lucy, his sister. And she immediately says, uh, change the channel. And Linus responds, what makes you think you can come in here and just take over like that? And Lucy looks at her brother and she says, these five fingers. She says, individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. Linus says, which channel do you want? And in the last frame, he's looking at his own fingers, and he says, why can't you guys get organized like that? (laughs) Have you ever felt a little bit like Linus? You know, we live in a world in which Christians as a whole more and more are becoming bullied by those in the world. And while we as believers are not to become bullies ourselves like Lucy, what God tells us today in this passage in Philippians is that if we will come together as believers, if the church would work together as one unit, we would become an even greater force to behold in the world. God knows this, which is why he calls us today in Philippians chapter one, beginning in verse 27, to come together for the cause of Christ. I invite you to look with me at this passage. In Philippians 1, through 30, he tells us only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may, hear, uh, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Now, depending upon which translation of the Bible you're using this morning, verse 27 may say, live your life, or let your conversation be, or conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The Greek word that you find translated here is conduct yourself is polytomai. This is a word that means uh, to live as a citizen. Now, this is a unique word. It's only found two times in the entirety of the Bible. One is here in the passage we're looking at, and the other is in Acts 23, verse 1. There's another word that is typically used in the Scriptures when it talks to us about how we live our life, and that's peripatao. And this is a word that means to live, to walk, to conduct oneself. Uh, This word politomai is where we get our word politics from. There in Acts 23.1, Paul, as he's on trial, says, I haven't broken any laws of the land. Now, normally, he would use this other word, but um, this word peripatau is a word we find many times in the Scriptures. You can look in Ephesians 4.1. There it says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul speaking again, says, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In Colossians 1.10, it tells us, "...so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God." The reason that Paul uses this other word here is because, remember, the audience he's writing to are the Philippians. And the city of Philippi was a very unique city because it was known as a Roman colony. It it enjoyed a special status. There were only five cities in all of Macedonia that had the designation of a Roman colony. And and Philippi was one of them. So as Paul is writing to them, he uses a very rich word, this polytomai, that would have spoke volumes to them. Later in Philippians 3.20, he's going to remind them that while their citizenship may be Roman, they have an even greater citizenship because there in Philippians 3.20, he says, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul is bringing up this idea of citizenship here, what he's reminding them of is not only is there a special status as citizens, those who were Roman citizens in Philippi, but he says there are responsibilities that you know as a citizen that you have. Here in America, we know there are privileges to being a citizen of the U.S., but there are also responsibilities to pay taxes, to be a part of those who defend our nation, the privilege of voting. There are various things that come with being a citizen. And those who have a citizenship have a responsibility. And with that responsibility is also the idea of representing. I said that there were five cities in Macedonia that were Roman colonies. And one of the big things about being a Roman colony, it was designed to be a Rome away from Rome. It was your home away from home. And so as people would travel into one of these cities that were uh, designated as a Roman colony, it was just like stepping into Rome. And what they would find there is the dress of the people was Roman, the, the laws of the land were Roman, the court system, everything was like Rome. And so it was designed when you walked into Philippi to feel like you were home in Rome. And if you've ever traveled overseas, you know that when you're, you're overseas, uh, whether you like it or not, people look at you and they hear that you're an American, in, in, in our case, And so when you walk into this place, people immediately begin to judge you and America, don't they, by your citizenship. And with that comes uh, baggage sometimes. They will look at you and say, oh, you're an American. That means you're loud, you're arrogant, you're brash, and, and everything that goes with that in the eyes of some around the world. And others will look at you and say, wow, America, I love America. The democracy, the freedoms, and all the things that come with being in America Now, when you are in these other places, there are also embassies at times. This uh, place that is a America away from America. If you go into an embassy, you're literally standing in that country's soil on sovereign American soil. It's a place of protection for you as a citizen. It's a place where you can get served as a citizen. And so these are the, the idea of what these embassies are away. So Philippi to the average person was exactly this. It was an embassy away. It was a place where they were to be reminded of what that other place would be like. And I share all this background because what Paul is telling us as Christians is that we are to be like an embassy. For those who are looking forward to heaven one day, when they walk through the doors of a church like Wayside, they should literally be walking into a little slice of heaven. They should be walking into a place that represents what heaven will be like. This is a, a home away from home. Now, believe me, it gets a lot better than this. As great as our church is, uh, heaven is going to be so much better than this. But what, what heaven is, what Wayside is designed to be is a place where we show people a little slice of what the future is like. And it's not only within the doors of Wayside, but it's when we as believers are out in the world away from this church gathering. We are to be representatives, Ambassadors. And so as you think about your life, as you think about people who meet you, uh, what are they seeing of heaven? What type of representative are you being of God and what what Christianity represents? There are places that I've been around the world where I was the first American that people had ever met. And as you walked into a place like that, people's whole idea of America was being painted uh, by their impression of me. That's kind of scary when you think about it. But it's the same thing with some of you. You're in places where you work, where you go to school, people who meet you on the street, that you are their representative of what Christianity is all about. Your life may be the only Bible they have ever read to this point. And as you think about your life, what kind of impression are you giving to others about what it means to be a Christ follower? Sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, Roger, I want to share my faith. Uh, What kind of track would you recommend? If you look in the pew back in front of you, we have uh, some tracks there that say, may I ask you a question? And they have the Romans Road, and they have some illustrations. Those are great tracks that you can use, and they're there for you to take and to use. Uh, but what I tell people often is the best track you can share with somebody is your own life. In fact, Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 3 two. He says, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men as you think about your life, your life is a letter from God to others. And as you think about your life, uh, listen to this poem. An unknown author wrote this. He said, you are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithful and true. Just what is the gospel according to you? What is the gospel according to you? As people come in contact with you, as they meet you, what type of representation do we give of Jesus Christ? As you think about us at Wayside, for those who are looking for a home away from home, do they find a little bit about heaven here? Are we a good representative of what heaven will be like when the saints are gathered? Another author wrote this. They said, to dwell above with the saints we love, well, that will be grace." glory to live below with the Saints we know well that's another story (laughs) now as I talk about creating a little slice of heaven here at Wayside I know that we cannot compare with the grace and glory of heaven I know that we are imperfect people and we will never be a, a, a perfect representation of heaven but what we do need to remember is what I've mentioned before that we are ambassadors Whether it's here at church, whether it's where we are out in the world, we are walking billboards. People are reading our lives, and we need to be those who are better representatives. Our beliefs need to be seen in our life. Ask yourself if the way you conduct business, the way you treat or talk to people, would make others want to spend eternity with you. As you think about your life and the way that you live your life, would people want to spend eternity with you? We're called on, Paul says, to live, to walk, to represent our country, which is in heaven. If the answer is no, then I want to ask you, you should ask yourself, what changes are you going to make? Paul tells us here in Philippians 1.27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, as you see that word worthy, when he says to live, to live your life in a way that is worthy of the gospel. What I don't want you to do is make the mistake of thinking Paul is telling you to live your life in a way that you might be worthy enough to make it into heaven. That's not at all what he's saying. The scriptures are very clear that we cannot earn our way to heaven. Paul, who was used to write the book of Romans, tells us in Romans 3.10, There is none righteous, no, not one. He tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says none of us will ever be perfect enough, good enough to get to God that way. In fact, what Romans 6.23 tells us is the wages of sin is death. Wages are what we earn. And so what he says is the way we live our life, what we earn is not entrance into heaven, but it's actually the reverse. The death there is an eternal separation, a second death separated from God. Now, the good news is, he goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, we get into heaven not based upon the way we live. We get into heaven based upon what Jesus Christ did for us as he died on the cross to pay that penalty of sin and death for us. And as Paul is calling on us here to live our lives in a way that is worthy of, The word there in Philippians 127 is axios. And this word means literally to be of equal weight. In the picture here, this word was used of the old balance scales. If you've ever seen these old uh, arm balance scales, the way that they would work is you would put a standard of weight on one side. And then you would have the the items on the other that you were weighing, and they would either add or remove or add weights in order to bring these two sides into balance. And so when he says that we are to live our lives in a manner worthy, what he says is we have been given the gift of eternal life. We've been given a position in the family of God. So that's put on one side, and that scale goes like this. And what he says now is we are to begin to to live our lives, adding things on the other side that will bring that that balance scale to a place where it is of equal weight. We don't earn our way to heaven. That's been given to us. But what he says is we are now to be adding things in our life, so to speak, the way that we live, the way that we walk, so that we begin to reflect more and more our position in Christ. This is what Paul's calling us on to do here. Now, again, I want to remind you, our works don't make us acceptable to God. But once we are saved, we are to live in a way that reflects that. You read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. But if you keep reading, the very next verse in verse 10 tells us this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Again, the picture here is we are saved. We are given that on one side, but then we are to bring our life into equal balance by the way that we live our life. When when we live like this, the root of our faith is shown by the fruit that we produce in our life. And as you look at your life, you can ask yourself, how much more uh, do these scales need to move to begin to reflect more and more your position in Christ? As Philippians 1.27 continues, Paul says, this is something that should be seen. As he says that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, as we'll see, unfortunately, when we get to Philippians 4.2, this wasn't the case with everyone, because there we're going to meet two women who were at war with one another in the church. And their testimony was, was not a good one, and it was threatening to tear apart the unity of the church and that's the kind of stuff Satan loves. It gives him a foothold in a, in a place like this. As, as you think of the embassy and the representation of what this should be like in heaven, when we're fighting with one another as we fight the family instead of our foe, Satan, what we do is not only create a, a place of chaos instead of a place of unity, so that others who walk into a church that is at war with itself, they say, you know, I've got enough going on out at work and in the world. I don't want to come to church and have to be involved in a fight, too. And beyond that, what it does is it draws us off the purpose God has given us of of representing him and of sharing the good news of the gospel. And so what he calls on us as believers to do is to be unified, to be pulling together instead of pulling apart. This word that he uses here, when he says to strive together for the faith of the gospel, the Greek word for striving together is sunithaleo. And this is a word that means to work together with. It was originally a wrestling term. It was used uh, not of the, the Ring of Honor Smackdown stuff you see on TV. I don't know if any of you are fans of that. That's not the team wrestling concept. In the Greek games and things, they would have wrestling, and they would have teams that wrestle together. And so this word was used of that idea of a team pulling together. If you've ever seen a rugby match, they have what's called a scrum. And this is the picture where they're all pulling together. They form a, a, a unified, cohesive team to push against the opposition. It's the same idea if you watch football and you see the defensive line. You get these almost 300-pound monsters that are shoulder-to-shoulder with one another, and they're pulling together. Their whole job is to, to work as a unit. It does no good to have a, an all-American Uh, in one position in a weak line all around him because the, the enemy will just break through in the other part of the line. And so the idea is for us as believers that we are striving together, that we are working together for one cause. The picture is of a team that competes together rather than of an individual seeking to be a superstar. You see it in baseball. When a batter is called to hit a sacrifice fly, knowing that he's going to be called out, but his whole purpose is to advance the next runner on base. We see it when a wide receiver or running back in a football game is running the two-minute drill, and he knows, you know, I could, I could cut to the right and pick up another five or, or so yards for my own individual statistics, but for the sake of the team, what he does is he runs out of bounds to save the time on the clock. For the goal of the team scoring those points that are needed. We see it uh, in basketball. When, a, when a, a game is taking place, I love basketball and to watch the teamwork. Every now and then you see a guy who will steal the ball, and what does he do? He breaks away down the court, he drives the lane, and he comes up with one of those monster tomahawk jams. Isn't that great? But very rarely is that how the points are scored in a game. Most often, what happens is it's a teamwork where the person will look for the open man and he'll pass the ball and that one will pass the ball. And on it's going, they'll work it around the key until somebody gets the shot and they put it in. And after the point is scored, what do you see that basketball player doing? He'll look at the guy who fed him the ball, the assist, and he'll point, right? And what he's saying is, I couldn't have scored this basket without you. And he points at the guy. I was watching a game once where it was a, a, a just a, a great symphony of teamwork as they were working the ball up the court. And when the last guy scored, he turned and he pointed to the guy who fed him the ball. And that guy turned and he pointed to the one who fed him. Before it was all over, it was a love fest. Everybody's just pointing at everybody because they all knew that without one another, without this sunathaleo, without pulling together, there would be no way that that point could have been scored. And this is the picture. Of ministry, This is the picture of what happens at Wayside. When you come on a Sunday morning, the, the ministry that takes place isn't what you, you see only here on the platform. It would be easy for somebody to look and say, well, there's a superstar who's a singer or the person preaching, and, and that's all that's happening at Wayside, but that's, that's not anything of what is happening at Wayside. The ministry taking place right now at this moment could not take place without the team all around us. As I look up in the balcony, uh, there's, the O'Briens are running sound and light. People were here early in the morning, setting up the platform, getting ready. As, as you walked on property, before you even take your seat, there are people that are, that are making the ministry happen. Before the person handed you the bulletin, and so many of you this morning got that bulletin and said, this is wrong, well, we had a fumble, right? Right? <laughs> We had a fumble back in the week where the wrong file got printed. But most weeks as we pull together, somebody is printing that bulletin. And then there are ushers and greeters that hand it to you as you walk through the door to let you know what's going on. And before that usher or greeter even gave it to you, somebody was handling that bulletin. There's there's a group of guys that show up here on Friday mornings. And they fold the bulletins, and they stuff the prayer inserts, and they, they do these. It's a group of men who, who serve faithfully week in and week out. And it only costs us a box of donuts with these guys to, to get them. I love to walk in the room and, and see this group of uh, some of our senior men who are sitting there, and they're having a great time of fellowship. And they're the guys who fill the communion trays. They're the ones who, who put together you know, almost 2,000 uh, cups of juice for communion. Those are things that you don't see, but without them, these things wouldn't happen. There are people, before you even get to the greeter or the usher, who are helping you. There's the the shuttle drivers. If you've ever ridden one of our shuttles, Lonnie Bain and a group of of five or six other drivers, people with CDLs, are running the shuttle so that you have a place to park. Now, you may be thinking, well, Roger, I don't use the shuttle. I park here. You're able to park here because they're running the shuttle and they're serving you by opening up spaces off-site so others will park there. And then there are the individuals who are part of the parking posse, these guys who are flagging you in saying, I got two spaces left on this road, come over here. Again, they're serving so that you're able to come in and hear the sermon so you're not all frustrated at the moment you walk through the door. There are, there are people that are serving in the children's ministry. I could... I, I can't even begin to name, because there are literally hundreds of people who serve in those areas of ministry. But let me just highlight some of the teams that serve. We, we have uh, family teams like husbands and wives. Christy and, and Grady Carlson serve every Sunday in the four-year-olds. We have, we have mother and daughter teams. Uh, Patricia O'Dowd and her daughter Christine serve in the fours and threes. There are men who are serving. Mike McReynolds and Britt Jenkins have the fifth-grade boys. There are individuals that are in high school, like Jordan Barton. She's a senior who serves in the two-year-olds. We have college students who serve in the student ministry. Taylor Putnam is one who serves faithfully week in and week out, a full-time student working to put herself through school, and yet she serves every Wednesday and Sunday with a group of the girls. Brianna McElroy is another one who serves in the junior high ministry, another college student who is discipling a group of junior high girls and helping them to grow up. This past Saturday, she took a group of those seventh grade girls that she meets with week in and week out in small group ministry, and they went to one of the homes of one of our widows. And they spent the day uh, doing yard work and cleaning up around the house. These young girls learning how to serve, uh, another one in our church who needed some help. These are the type of things that you don't see taking place, but it happens every week here. We have those who do the landscaping like Peggy Lips and Rosemary Kitten. You walk through the courtyard and you see the beautiful prayer garden and some of the other things. These are ladies who come up here at times you don't see and they're serving. And if you love to garden, they'd love to add you to their team. We, we have those who, who serve in Hebrews. Hebrews is the coffee house ministry. Some of you get uh, a latte or a breakfast or something like that when you come on property. And there's a whole team of people that are involved in the food service. Behind the scenes, we have the Berries and the Bauman's, uh, Assad, Elena, Sophie. There are many people who serve in those ways so that you're awake and ready to hear the sermon. We have men like Michael Anderson and his team who serve the widows and single moms through the oil change ministry. For those who uh, are unable to afford that or take care of their cars themselves, they do that. We have men who serve in what we term our amen ministry that serve not only uh, single moms and widows in our church, but also the families of military who are deployed. And so while the, the husband is overseas serving, if something goes wrong at home, they're able to call the church, and some of these men will show up at the house and take care of a handyman item so that the family doesn't have to worry about these things. These are things that make the ministry happen. Gwen Haynes calls our Meals on Wheels teams, as we serve uh, shut-ins in our community, those who don't even come to Wayside, but are served by the people of Wayside. When you think of feeding people, it's a vital ministry for college students. And Jason and Dori Andrews have been serving our college students by hosting them in their homes and feeding them and supporting them in various ways. Ron and Sue Hugler, Uh, Ron's a retired military chaplain, and he, for two years, was in the leadership of our Momentum, our older singles ministry that they served in that way here at our church. There are others who serve in administrative ways, the finance, the legal committees. You know, I could keep going, but at every level, our ministry is, is done by the people who have these gifts, who share their time, their talents, and their treasures. And so as you look at what ministry is, it is this picture here where we are pulling together, where each of us as believers who have been given a spiritual gift and ability are called to come together as part of a team in order to make the ministry of Wayside take place. Now, what happens in society is many are good at pointing out what went wrong, but what would happen if we got in the habit of pointing to people who made something go well? When we see somebody who's serving well When you pick up your kids, when you're handed a bulletin, when a a person serves you on the shuttle or the parking lot, you get on the bus and you say, thank you. Thank you for your ministry to me. Thank you to your ministry to to the community. You heard about the the outreach that Rick mentioned at the Lantana and Carybrook Apartments. Uh, They fed over 120 people in these apartments just up the street from us. And they went door to door with the gospel and they played games with the kids. And those are areas where our Colonial Hills Initiative is already connecting into schools and now we're reaching into the homes and the families around. We're reaching the community around Wayside. You know, this works not just at church. Think about if you went to work Monday morning, and when you walked into your office, you saw the administrative assistant who helps you. You saw your coworkers who are part of a team that you're on. You saw somebody who did something for you, and and you pointed at them, and you said, thank you. Thank you for for making me look good. Thank you for the work you did in that presentation. What if you were to go to your students, those of you who have kids, And instead of catching them always just doing something wrong, you were to say to your son or daughter, you know what, somebody gave me a compliment this week about you. They talked about how well behaved you are, about how you did this great thing for them, or how you served in some way. And you point at them and you say, thank you. Thank you for making me look good. Thank you for being a a great young man or a young woman. This is what Paul wants us to do. And as as we're thinking about this idea, Paul tells us coming together is not just an advantage in the work we do as a team, but it helps us individually. He says when when we have a team around us, we don't have to fear our opponents. As you look at verse 28, uh, the word that is used there for alarmed was a Greek word that was used to describe a horse that was spooked and that ran away from battle. In verse 27, he told us we are to stand firm. Two opposing pictures. He says, as believers who have a team around you, you can stand firm. You don't have to be spooked and run from the opposition. It's a lot easier to stand and fight when you know you're not alone, but you have others around you. There was an article in uh, National Geographic years ago that featured the Arctic wolf. And in it, it described a seven-member wolf pack that was out on a prowl. And it came across a group of 11 musk oxen adults that had several brand new calves in the little herd. And these wolves, as they were circling the musk, musk, musk oxen group to attack them and try to get to these vulnerable little calves, uh, the writer said it was, it was amazing to watch because what the herd did was they, they pushed the calves together in a tight little group And then the 11 adults all got together facing in with their deadly rear hooves facing out. And the writer said he watched for hour after hour as the seven-member wolf pack circled this impenetrable little circle. And every time a wolf got too close, one of the adults would kick out with its hooves. And they said that the ox kept the calves safe until at one point one of the adults suddenly got spooked. And he broke ranks, and he pulled out of the circle and ran off. And soon what happened was the rest of the group was disorganized, and it eventually broke apart. And the the end result was that the wolf pack came in and was able to kill every one of the calves because one broke from the circle. And the picture for us as believers is that we have an enemy. The Bible describes Satan as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour And what Paul says is if we will pull together, if we as a group of believers will surround the weak and the vulnerable in our body, those who are hurting, those who need support at times, we can protect them. That the idea is not to leave that individual out in the cold and and easy to be picked off. And so what God calls us to do as believers is to pull together to support and love one another. And that's what Wayside Chapel does. Many of you do that through the Agape ministry and other things. The scripture is very clear in the book of Acts that those who had shared with those who were in need. And because of the generosity of this church, the Agape account is is fully funded. We're able to meet all of the needs. And so many of you I know give faithfully to that. And it's almost to the point where David had to say, stop giving. You know, Solomon, when the temple was being built, said it's fully, we have everything we need. You know, there, there is an abundance because of the gifts of people. And so this is a picture of the church. As Paul calls on us to pull together, he says our unity will be a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. Now, as we talk about standing together, I want to remind you that doesn't mean that you never say, you know, I disagree with something going on at Wayside or I see something that, that could be better. Unity is not uniformity. It's not what we always say. Everybody just has to pull together and, and cover their mouth and be quiet. If you see things that need to be worked on, then you need to share that. But as you do so, you do it in the spirit that it's designed to be where you say, first of all, I want this to be, uh, I want to resolve this situation, and I want to make things better, and you make yourself a part of the solution. As, as If you think about this idea of unity being destroyed by those who come in, it can happen as well if you let something simmer or sweep it under the rug, because eventually it's going to blow up. You see it in churches today, denominations that have said, you know, we're tired of fighting and we're tired of of standing against the culture around us, so we're just gonna compromise. We're gonna become a church that says, you know, we tolerate everything and, and we don't stand for anything. And what happens is unity is destroyed there anyway because those who say God's word is the standard and we should stand for things are suddenly those that say, I can't be a part of this church anymore. It's almost like what we see happening in the world around us today. And so people will leave that church and that denomination will weaken Statistics show that those churches that say we're all-inclusive and we're tolerant of everything and there are no absolutes, those are the ones that are actually diminishing in size. And more importantly, they're diminishing in their effectiveness. Because the goal is to get the gospel out. In verse 27, we're reminded there is only one way. He says salvation is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. After reminding them that their salvation is from God, Paul tells them in verse 29 something else Uh, that they get as a part of those who are citizens. He says, you get the privilege of suffering as a Christian. Now you may say, wait a minute, Roger, did you just say we get the privilege of suffering? Look at verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The Greek word that's translated as granted here is charizomai. Uh, This is a word that means to give freely or graciously as a favor. The root word is where we get our word charismatic from. And as you think about charismatics, I don't want you to have the picture of those prosperity preachers you see on TV, the ones that are all about health, wealth, and prosperity, because not all charismatics are like that. But there are people in the world that say, what God wants to give you is health, wealth, and prosperity, no suffering. If you come to faith in Christ, everything should be good. If you have sickness in your life, if you have trial in your life, if anything like that is happening, you're outside the will of God. Friends, what I wanna tell you is, if those things are happening in your life, you're probably more in the will of God. There are times that you suffer because of consequences of bad choices. Please hear that clearly. There are times we are judged because of sin in our life. There are times we make bad decisions and we bring things on ourselves. But what God tells us in his word is, is if you are standing firm, if you are making a difference in the world and you are an enemy of our enemy, Satan, guess what? You become a target and he attacks. He attacks churches that are making a difference. He attacks individual believers who are making a difference. What Jesus Christ told us in John 16, 33 is, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. That's good news, right? It is if you have the perspective of Paul. It is if you understand fully your position in Christ. That idea of being of equal weight as one who is in Christ, what God says is there are times things are going to be added to this side of the scale that are heavy, tribulation. But what it's doing is it making, it's making you more and more like Christ. He's refining us. He's burning away the stuff that doesn't belong. And what will be left is stuff that is worthy, stuff that is weighty. Remember the, Greek wo- the Hebrew word for glory is kavod, and it literally means heavy. And so what God says is these things, as he refines our life, as he changes us, as he adds weight to us as believers, we become more precious and valuable as we're covered in the glory of God, as we reflect who God is more and more in our life. Paul says in verse 30, you are experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. This word for conflict is a It's where we get our word agony from. As you think about the word conflict, we think of it as more of this term of fighting, but it was originally used to describe the field, the athletic field. You saw that word sunathileo? we get our word athletics from it. And so as Paul talks about conflict, what he says is the agony, the place that you are on is the playing field for athletic events. In fact, it came to describe the games themselves. You think of the old wide world of sports tagline, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat? Well, here what he's saying is the agony, the conflict that you and I go through in this life is part of the contest of striving for that prize that God has before us as he tells us to run the race in the scriptures. You see, what, what Paul tells them is God doesn't want you sitting in the stands watching, but he wants you to get in the game to get on the field. Now, as a longhorn, this illustration pains me, but I think it's a good one. (laughs) Any Aggies out there? No whoops, okay. The Aggies, as you know, are known to be the home of the 12th man. And the 12th man tradition goes back to 1922. And the way that the 12th man came about is there was a coach by the name of Dana Bible And he was playing in a hard-fought game where the Aggies were getting decimated. Their bench was being wiped out. There were so many injuries in the game that at one point he looked over at his bench, and other than the 11 men that were on the field, he didn't have a replacement to send into the game. And as the game was proceeding, he remembered a player that he had up in the booth. His name was uh, E. King Gill. And Gil used to be a member of the squad, but now he was playing basketball, so he hadn't suited up for the game, and he was up there helping people point out you know, players on the field. Well, Coach Bible sent word up to the booth that he needed uh, Gil to come down and suit up because he didn't have anybody else to go in the game. And so Gil got suited up and he stood on the sidelines uh, ready to go in. If one more of the 11 men on the field got hurt, he was the 12th man that was left to go in. And he stood through the remainder of the game signaling that he was ready to go in. And the Aggie students have picked up this tradition to say that they are always standing in the stands ready to be the 12th man who is called into the game. And this is the picture that Paul has for us. He says that all of you, who are out there in the pews are the 12th man. You are the ones who are part of the ministry. Many of you are already doing the ministry. But what he says is that each and every one of you needs to be standing ready on the bench and ready to go in the game, not just here at Wayside, but out there in the world, in your workplace, in your schools, on the street. As an opportunity comes, he says, are you ready? Are you ready to get in the game, to join on the field of agony? As you think about this picture, someone wants to find a football game as a place where 60,000 people in desperate need of exercise are sitting in the bleachers, watching 22 men on the field who are in desperate need of rest. If you change the numbers in some churches, the picture applies because there is just a handful of people in desperate need of rest doing all the ministry, while the pews are full of people who are in desperate need of spiritual exercise to get in the game. As you look at your life today, I wanna remind you, God doesn't want you sitting in the stands. He's calling on you to get in the game. And as we end today, I want you to consider where you are. And if you're somebody who's ready to get in the game. If today wasn't a communion Sunday, what I would do is have you stand right where you are and pray for you, but instead I want the men to prepare for communion because what we're gonna do today is we're gonna be reminded of God's willingness to get in the game, of God's willingness to leave his throne in heaven, to come to earth, to take our place. As he went to the cross, as he said, there is a penalty that has to be paid. There's a penalty of death and nobody can pay that penalty but me alone. And so he was willing to leave his place in heaven in glory and come to earth not only taking on flesh and blood to walk among us and live with us, but ultimately to give his life as he went to the cross to die for our sins. I want you to think about that. And if you're sitting here today saying, I'm not in the game because it's cost too much for me to do so. I want you to remember the cost that Christ paid for you. And in a moment as the men pass the elements, I want you to take and hold the bread representing his body and the cup representing his blood and to say to God, thank you. Thank you for your willingness to leave your throne in glory and to take the field, and ultimately to take my place and die for me. If you're here today and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to receive his great gift of new life, to take the bread and the cup representing his body and blood, his sacrifice, and to say to Jesus, today I'm turning to you. I wanna be made a part of your family. I'm turning from my sin into you, Jesus, to be my savior. And as you do so, the Bible says you will be saved. You'll be made a part of the family. For the rest of us who already belong to him, God calls on us today to bring our life into balance. He's already given us all we need to enter into heaven. And what he says now is I want you to conduct yourselves to live your lives in a way that is worthy, that is of equal weight of what I've done for you. So if there are things in your life from the past day, weeks, months that you need to confess, use this time to do so and recommit yourself to the Lord. Men, will you service, please? We hold in our hand a piece of bread, but what it represents is the body of Jesus Christ, the one who is willing to leave his throne in heaven to take the field, to go to the the place, the agone, ultimately the place of true agony as he suffered a brutal death on the cross. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. There was a payment that had to be made, and our Savior, Jesus Christ, paid the penalty in full. That's why He said in John 19:30 it is finished, literally paid in full. And so, as you hold in your hand this piece of bread representing the sacrifice that God made to save us, think of the price He was willing to pay to save you and me, the body of Christ, seated in remembrance of Him. And we have a cup of juice. It came from the Passover celebration. There were multiple cups during the Passover, and this one was called the cup of redemption. And as Jesus took this cup, he told the disciples, this is the cup of the new covenant. He was telling them that no longer would there have to be the sacrifice, the animal sacrifices of the blood that was shed. The book of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But those sacrifices were temporary. They could not remove the penalty of our sin. But what Jesus did for us is he removed our sins once and for all. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west. And so as you take and you drink this, remember the sacrifice that was made, what Jesus did to wash away your sins and mine, the blood of Jesus Christ, drink it in remembrance of him. We join me, please, as we close in prayer? God, we thank you for your great love for us. Demonstrated through your willingness to go to the cross, to pay that penalty of sin and death that we owed. We thank you, God, for the free gift of eternal life that we now possess. Father, for those of us who know your truth and know your son, may we go into the world today as ambassadors for your son, as representatives of the the way home. May we be those who go into our workplaces, our schools, even our homes and our classrooms, and we share the good news with others who need to know what it means to know and love and follow you, Jesus. So send us out now, Lord. We're taking the field. We thank you for letting us be a part of the team. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Prayer leaders at the front, if you have a need, they'd love to pray with you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.